So if you haven't already done so, let's find our sermon outlines. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 7, where we're going to start today, Romans 7. Um, and we're going to just be there in just a couple of minutes. If you don't have an outline and you have our Three Crosses app, it's right there. You can open the app and find your way to the outline today on this final message in the series, Rooted. This series has been about yielding our lives to the Holy Spirit, and when we do that, this amazing fruit takes place. And we've said this all through the series, the root determines the fruit. And so if you're rooted in Christ, the fruit is going to be the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and today we come to self-control. And we all need self-control. I mean, who doesn't need self-control? Most of us are out of control, if you really are honest. Some of us are out of control with our finances. Some of us are out of control in our personal relationships. Some of us are out of control with addiction issues, substance issues. We can't stop something. We can't start something. We are out of control. And the beautiful promise from the Scripture is that when we belong to Jesus and He lives in our lives through His Holy Spirit, we have the fruit of self-control. We don't have to do the things that used to hold us in bondage. And we can start doing some things that uh, we really want to do in our walk with God. Um, I'm going to just throw a, a scripture on the screen. Proverbs 25, 28 says, Like a city whose walls are broken down is the person who lacks self-control. That's so true. In the ancient times, a city had walls to protect itself from marauders, from you know, those that would come in and pillage. And when the walls were down, you were vulnerable to every enemy, anybody that wanted to come. And so here we find this biblical principle that if you don't have self-control, you're like a city who is without walls and you lose uh, any sense of security in your life. So I want to give you today three reasons why the Holy Spirit would give us this beautiful gift of self-control to be able to say no to the things we need to say no to, to say yes to the things that we should say yes to, and to feel this supernatural empowerment to do so in our lives. And the first reason, if you're taking notes, is that the Holy Spirit offers us this self-control because of the unmistakable conflict that demands use of it. We are in a conflict. We are in a war. We are in a spiritual battle. And here in Romans 7, where we begin today, if you're looking at it now in verse 21, we see what Paul has to say about this battle. He says, so I find this law at work, although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in, the, in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. I've chosen that little paragraph. That's in the context of a lot bigger section that deals with this battle that we're in, the flesh versus the spirit. And Paul is here saying that even though we come to know Jesus, when we've given our lives to him and we belong to the family of God, we still have this war going on. We've still got this fight that's going on within us. And sometimes if we're not if we don't demonstrate self-control, we give in to the things that we should not be giving into. And that's the simple thing about the word self-control, enkratia in the Greek language. It literally means 
to control yourself. <laughs> it just, it, it literally, it's just a, a point blank. And the reason why we need that gift is because our cells need control. It implies that we are typically unable to control all the things in our lives, right? The way we want to. And this is what Paul is saying here. But of course, how does this work? What is this... How does this work in a, like in a practical way? If you go back to chapter 6 of Romans, let's just take a, a look at a couple places here. Beginning in verse 11 of chapter 6, Paul writes, he says, In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, okay, because in the context, Jesus died, the, di- the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. So in the same way, verse 11, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you would obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of your, yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. Look at verse 14. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law but under grace. There's a new sheriff in town, so to speak. There's a new power that's available to you when the Spirit of God comes to live in your life. And you don't have to say yes to the urges that once held you captive. Go over to chapter 8, and we'll see it again here. Uh, verse, let's see, where are we going to pick up? Verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Okay, so if we belong to Christ, here's what's going on here. If we belong to Christ, we have a choice. We can think on the things of the Spirit. We can ask the Spirit to take control of our lives, or we can hold on to ourselves and do the things that we choose to do, and and then we see where that goes. And usually when you see what you can do without the power of the Holy Spirit working in your life, you wind up in some pretty bad places in life. And this is where we lose control of things in our lives. A um, little illustration. When I was a kid, um, I remember my dad bought me a, a red wagon, a little red flyer wagon. Remember those wagons? And uh, yeah, it was like, finally I had a set of wheels. I was so excited. And my dad took me out for a little maiden voyage. We lived across the bay in a real hilly area of the peninsula. And there was a street right next to us called Highland, okay? So you can just picture what that street was like. It was, it was high, and it, and it went downhill. And so we went to the edge of that street, and my dad said, hop in, you know? So I hop in, and he says, take the stick. So I take the stick, and, and he hops in behind me, and down the hill we go. And it, it only took about five seconds to realize, I think both of us realized at the same time, this was not a good idea. <laughs> And about the time I figured my dad would be putting out his legs, he was still like tucked in. Maybe he was holding me. I don't remember. But I had my hands on the stick and I decided, okay, it's time for me to like figure this out. So I see a cul-de-sac. We're whipping down this hill. Here's a cul-de-sac. I'm going to pull into the cul-de-sac. So I just a couple inches move the stick and boom, we're out of the wagon. We are just toppling down this hill. And we were so skinned up. My, My dad, I remember his arms were cut up. My legs, arms, everything. We were skinned up, our face. And... You know, and my dad kind of gently reminded me, hey, you had control of the wagon, you know, like. <laughs> so then, now fast forward, a little while later, we're back in Minnesota, and, and, you know, this is, it was so great growing up in my era, because my dad, you know, we're, we're in a 1960 Volkswagen bus with our whole family, we're going to see my grandparents in Minnesota, and as soon as we get on these little dirt roads that led to my grandfather's farm, uh, he'd say, every time we drove back there, he'd say, okay, who wants to drive? 
And so, like, I'm in elementary school, you know. And I'd say, I do. You know, he'd say, yeah, I saw what you did with the wagon. How about your sisters? Would anyone else want to drive? But he'd let me get in there, and so we would drive. And he would put us on his lap. And on these country roads, I mean, I'm not kidding you. I'm, like, probably eight years old. And we're driving. And I remember the bus. I remember this wheel, you know, this giant wheel, you know, that I had. And my dad, he had to shift and use the brakes and everything. But here's, here's how it worked. I would sense, this is not so hard. I'm driving the bus. You know, I'm going down the road. But then I would sense, uh-oh, we're, we're like going toward the ditch right now. But my dad was so great. You know how this works as parents. He just put his hands on the wheel and he just, I could feel the resistance. Like, wait a minute. Why, why are we, oh, I get it. We're not going to go in the ditch because my dad's got the wheel. And he'd bring us back into the center and we would keep on driving. And that continued to happen over and over until he said, okay, you're out. Now your sister's in. And we just kind of do, do this little thing. And I thought to myself, all, all through my life I thought about that little illustration of my dad's hands sort of superintending the wheel because what, what happens in our Christian life is that if we hold on to the wheel and we say, God, I've got it, you know, like, God, I've got this, you know, it's not too long before we're in the ditch. You know, it's really not. We're, it, we're kind of prone to wander from the Lord. And as much as we think we can keep it all in line, it doesn't take long for us to wind up in a bad place if we're holding grip tight. Now, when my dad tried to adjust the wheel, I could have fought him. And I could have said, no, I've got it. And we would have been, you know, I'm sure that would have been the last time I ever got behind the wheel with my dad because I could have caused an accident that way. I had to release so that his wisdom, his direction, and his understanding of the situation could take over. And I think that's what Paul's saying in Romans 6 through 8. He's saying, look, if you're holding too tight to the wheel of your life, if you're trying to control the wheel of your life, you're going to find yourself in the ditch. And, and the ditch is going to require you uh, to, to have some things, you know, where God's going to have to build back in your life some very important things. So, so that's, that's what I get from... Uh, from that passage in Romans. Now, think of the areas that our lives need a level of control. And there's some big areas. I'm just going to hit on five of them really quick. These are common areas. If you go to YouTube today and just search like self-control, you'll find all these areas under what people are talking about the need for self-control. And, and they're very common areas, but the Bible speaks about them. First of all, our eating habits, you know, and by the way, this whole series was planned months ago, and this message was planned weeks ago, and I didn't plan on speaking about this on Thanksgiving week, but <laughs> here we are. Here we are. Eating habits are a problem. Um, I, have, I have my own problems with eating. First of all, I just eat too much, and I know you say, well, you know, genetically my body doesn't show it, but I eat. Way. You don't have to be large to eat too much, and I can eat sometimes too much. Uh, I, I love Proverbs 23.2 says, put a knife to your throat if you are given to gluttony. Now that's, that's a drastic, that's called hyperbole in Scripture. That's a, a drastic statement for a purpose, a truth. And wouldn't it be great if we embroidered that and put that on our refrigerator or something, you know? Because my family knows, and if you've eaten with me or if you've had me over for a meal, you know that I can eat. I can eat like nobody's business. And I sometimes eat too much, you know. And I've got this pro personal problem with chocolate. You know, it's my, like, peanut M&Ms are my downside, you know. And, and all my life, I love them. I can eat a pound of peanut M&Ms in one sitting. I can. I've done it. Um, my wife, my dear wife, you know, she, for all, I don't know, for the last 20 years, we have a jar of peanut M&Ms that she keeps perennially filled in our kitchen. And sometimes I'll say, honey, you know, 
why? Don't, I don't want these here. And, and she'll say to me, you don't have to eat them. <laughs> and she doesn't eat them. She knows it's my problem, you know. And so, I don't know, it's kind of, I, I don't know. But, so they're there right now. They're right now. I'm thinking of them right now. They're on the... <laughs> But we've all got our problems. What, what is, the point is, whatever it is that you're struggling with in sort of the eating piece, you know, uh, high blood pressure, obesity, diabetes, all these things, the spirit would rather take the wheel and say, look, you know, you don't need to do this. You should take care of yourself. It's okay to take care of yourself. I've been dabbling in fasting for the last few years. I've been trying to learn the rhythm of fasting in my life, and I'm terrible at it. But every week I have a day of fasting. I, I eat a, a dinner and then I don't eat till the next day's dinner. And all through that next day, I'm just hungry all the time. But it's a practice where my body is saying, go eat something, pick something out of the refrigerator, do something good, eat a banana, eat an apple or whatever. And I say, no, I'm not gonna do it because I want the experience of just denying myself and using that time to pray and seek the Lord. And there's some beautiful things that happen on that day. And I'm so, you know, it's kind of embarrassing. It's a private area of my life, but, but I'm, I'm wanting to experience more of what God says. You know, Jesus didn't say if you fast. He said when you fast. So it's anticipated. So fasting should be a discipline that all of us, we're trying to build this rhythm of fasting into our leadership and into all of our lives. And so I, I think it's a good time to mention it here. As a church family, wouldn't it be cool if we went on a fasting journey together, you know, for a few days even, or some of you are going, you're shaking your head. Don't stop shaking your head at me right now. Um, but this is the, these are beautiful things in the Christian life. But we have a problem because we don't have self-control. But we have the Spirit of God who gives us self-control. And, and I tell people, I say, look, if you'll trust the Spirit of God and just obey Him and just say yes to Him, you'll be amazed with what He'll give you power to do. But a lot of times we just chicken out before we get to the gate. We decide, well, I can't do that. I could, never, I could never stop eating that or I could never deal with my physical issue that way. But you can. Think about uh, exercise. Let's just do one more little, you know, terrible thing. Uh, let's talk about exercise. Um, my father had a saying that my father-in-law had a saying whenever we talked about working out or something. He'd say, yeah, you know, occasionally I get the desire to exercise, but I lay down until it goes away. That's, what, that's how he... <laughs> He dealt with exercise. I've got a guy, a young guy, I call him one of my spiritual kids. He's like a disciple. I've been training him. Well, he's like in his 30s, and he's a guy that goes to the gym all the time. So he once a week takes me to the gym. And does he ever take me to the gym? And, you know, I just, I just feel like, say, is it the torture chamber again today? Because I want to stop, but he says keep going. And the point I'm trying to make here, all of us would rather rest. We would rather say no to physical exercise. But remember, 1 Corinthians 6 tells us, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? You receive from God. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your what? With your bodies. Now, physical training is only part of it. And I love 1 Timothy 4.8 says, For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. So don't be into physical training if you're not also committed to spiritually training. But I think they kind of both go together. If you can't discipline yourself for one, you're likely not to be able to discipline for the other. But the Holy Spirit wants to help you with that. How about our thoughts and attitudes? Our thoughts and attitudes. 
You know, the Bible says we should take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. And whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, we should think about these things. Philippians 4, 8. And we should even have the attitude of Christ. Philippians 2, 5. And so the Bible talks about oh, how do we have that? We have that through the power of the Holy Spirit that helps us to think right ways and helps us to think on the things that are worthy to be thought about. This week I've struggled in my attitude in some cases. Have you, you know, you're kind of tired of the smoke, you know, and you're out and you're kind of wheezing and coughing and you're thinking, man, when is this going to clear up? And a couple times this week when I've had that attitude, I felt the Holy Spirit say to me, oh, wait a minute, you're complaining about the smoke? What about the people that don't have a house anymore? Oh, thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you for reminding me that I'm just a whiner right now. You know, so this is what, this is the beauty of the Holy Spirit's work in, his lo- in our lives, is that he, and he doesn't, he's so patient too. When it comes to all these areas that we're talking about, he graciously reminds us that he's there for us, that he'll give us the power that we need. Change the attitude, change the thought pattern. How about our sexuality and sexual behavior? Talk about a hot button issue in our culture. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4, he says, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid Sexual immorality. By the way, sanctified, big word, basically means to be holy. It means to be set apart. It means to be separate. You know, in a culture that we're living in, are we any different as Christ followers in our sexuality and in our sexual expressions? We should learn, look at verse 4, that everyone should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. Notice there, you should learn to control your own body. Listen, the self loves gratification. And when it comes to our sexuality, the self loves to gratify itself. The self loves to indulge. Self-indulgent, indulgement, is that a word? Self-indulging is what our culture says, yeah, do it. When it comes to sexuality, uh, just let your body determine what you should do and what identity you should have. Listen, the battle for truth in sexual ethics and gender identity requires the work and leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so many of us have bought the line of culture that says, let our bodies determine what's right for us. Let our desires determine what's right for us. And then we get into church and we read and study scripture where as followers of Christ, we're to obey the spirit of God. We're to release the grip on the wheel of our life and we're to say, God, where do you want to take us? What do you want to do with us? And if we're listening, the Spirit of God will say, yeah, I'll take. And God is so patient with us. Some of us are kind of waking up to what God wants. I talk to people who are brand new Christians, and they don't understand a Christian morality or a Christian sex ethic. And so when they read about being obedient and pure in our spiritual lives and in our physical lives, they're sort of like taken back by that. But if they're being trained pro- appropriately, if the Spirit of God is living in them, he's saying, trust my word, trust what God has to say, not what culture has to say. Because our culture has given us a lot of lies right now about our sexuality, about sexual identity. And in the church, sometimes we just sort of say, well, that's, that's culture and this is us. But then we start interpreting the Bible, like passages like 1 Thessalonians 4, through the lens of culture. And that's not exegesis. That's eisegesis, and only exegesis is what God wants us to do. What is the Bible telling me about how to live my life? 2 Corinthians 7.1 says, let's read it out loud together. Let's put this one up here. 
Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Are you perfecting, am I perfecting holiness out of reverence for God? Hebrews 12, 14, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 7, 5, speaking of marriage, a covenant relationship in a marriage between a man and a woman, Paul writes, he says, don't deprive each other sexually except unless it's mutual for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan won't tempt you because of your what? Your lack of self-control. So even for those of us who are in covenant marriage today, we have to remember that our bodies are not our own. And the Holy Spirit is pointing to the fact that we need His control in our lives if we're going to function appropriately in marriage. How about money and possessions? That's another one, isn't it? And isn't it interesting? We're coming into a season where money is just on our minds. and we're, Some of us are spenders. We're not savers. We're not good stewards, and, and this is an area that needs self-control. Some of us, we got to burn our credit cards and chop them up because when we get into the store, they just come flying out, and they just, and we don't think about how much money we actually have to use, and so we go into debt. Consumer debt is so high in our country. Many of us are suffering today from, over, uh, from being in, indentured to our, uh, to our credit, uh, creditors, and we don't realize that that's crimple, crippling our lives Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, whoever loves money never has money enough. Isn't that a great verse? If you love money, you're never going to have enough money. I was writing this sermon during the time where the mega millions was at $900 million. And I was listening to the news. I'd taken a break and I was listening to the news. And, and it was saying how it, there's such a frenzy in our culture for the lottery. And did you remember that like in four days it went from $900 million to $1.6 billion? There's a freneticness in our culture about getting more, 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 more. Is money evil? Not at all. But the root of evil is the love of money. That's what 1 Timothy 6.10 says. So all of this, you know, and we could talk about our speech, we could talk about our work ethic, we could talk about our service and the community. All of these things take self-control. And here's, here's what I hope you're hearing me say. This is not a pull yourself up by the bootstraps and get out there and do this stuff. It's like if you're struggling, if you're out of control in one of those five areas that I mentioned or another area that I haven't mentioned, you feel like you're out of control. If you're a follower of Christ, you have the best resource possible to help you get this area of your life under control because the gift of God's Spirit will give it to you if you cooperate with Him. It's there. It's there for the taking. Trust him. Obey him. Watch what happens in your life. And remember that he's patient. He's patient. And all these areas of our lives need time. And through the wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit, we can get through. All right. So that's the first reason. And I know our time is almost out. I've got just a couple more things to say, though, and I hope this will be of help to you. The Holy Spirit offers us self-control not only because of the unmistakable conflict but also because of the inevitable results, the inevitable results. This whole series has been about character building. And so if you're taking notes, I want you to see that self-control is the work of the Spirit that will produce godly character in our lives, and secondly, Christ-likeness in our lives. 
godly character and Christ-likeness. First, excuse me, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 11 is all about the character building that God wants to do in your life. And self-control is listed in the beautiful list of everything that the Holy Spirit wants to give to us. And not only so that our lives will be uh, built into a godly character, but so that we will manifest the life of Jesus. And you think about if there was anybody that manifested self-control, it was Jesus. In all the temptations of Christ, he manifested self-control. Wow, 40 days in the wilderness without food and tempted to make bread. He could have made lots of bread. He could have made bread out of the stones Satan tempted him to do. But he held self-control. When he was interrogated by the religious leaders, though being reviled, Peter tells us, he reviled not in return, but kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. 1 Peter 2.24. Jesus held self-control in the garden when he prayed. He said, Heavenly Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. That's a, that's a powerful statement of self-control. Listen, Jesus could have dropped his control and he could have stepped out of the role as being our Savior. But because he loved us to the nth, to the ultimate, he went all the way to the cross. He didn't save himself so that he could save us. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for loving us this way. So character and Christ-likeness is the inevitable results when the Spirit has His way, when we just loosen our grip on the wheel and let His Spirit choose the path, direct us in where we should go. Up, oh, that's not a good place. That's not healthy. Oh, there's a better place. That's where I want you to invest your time. Let Him direct your life. He will. And finally, the Holy Spirit offers self-control to every believer because of the imperishable prize. Did you know that we will all stand before the judgment of God one day? If you're a believer in Christ, let me be very clear about something that some of us are confused about. If you're a believer in Christ, if you belong to Christ, your judgment is not a judgment of punishment. It's a judgment of reward. Now, those are two blanks on your outline, but I want you to see them in one statement. The believer's judgment won't result in punishment, but only reward. We are not standing before Christ someday to be punished 2 Corinthians chapter 5.10, Paul writes, he says, well, we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That word in the Greek is bematos. It's the same word that the athletes were used to when they finished the race and they went to the place where their reward was given them. That was the bema seat. And this is what Paul writes. He says, every one of us will stand before the bema seat of judgment. What is that? It's a judgment for reward. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 through 15 says that if we built our life on stuff that falls apart, stuff that's useless, hay, wood, and stubble, stuff that burns up in the judgment, we will suffer loss, although we will all be saved and we will receive our reward. So, beloved, if you're a believer in Christ today, you should not fear the judgment, but you should recognize that that's the day where your, your Savior wants to honor the life that you lived. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. What a day that will be. 
What will he give us? Lots of speculation. Is it a crown? There's different crowns mentioned in Scripture. What will be the rewards that Jesus gives to us? You know, I don't even know if I can be dogmatic about this point. But when I read the book of Revelation, chapter 4, it says that the elders, which I believe represents the collected church of Jesus Christ as they're before the throne of Christ in heaven, it says the elders fall down and cast their, throne, their, their crowns at the throne. Maybe our reward will be given in such a way that we give it back in saying all glory and honor and praise goes to the one who gave us life, spiritual life, Jesus Christ. I hope I have something in my hands that day to give to our Lord Jesus Christ. And so sometimes we forget, beloved, we forget that living in this life matters the way we live. We're saved, yes, but what will there be with the reward? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, he says, Don't you know that all who run in a race run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way that you get the prize. And he talks about those that go into strict training, exercising self-control, all things. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. All right. I guess what I wanted to say at the close of this series is the way we live our lives and the character that God builds into our lives through his Holy Spirit matters. It matters for today and it matters for eternity. So, thus ends the Rooted series. The power of the Spirit of God alive in our lives gives us love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And those are all gifts from the Lord who lives in us through His Holy Spirit.